Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Yeah, it looks like I'm actually trying to be consistently back. It is now Sunday, July 24th, 2022. And I've taken the opportunity to do something a little bit nasty. I, uh, I'm here in Ashkelon. I needed to review Ashkelon because I'm going to be guiding it in a few weeks. So I asked the best person that I could possibly think of to uh, to come and help me review Ashkelon. And that's the person who actually taught me how to be a tour guide, Huey Alman, way back, I don't know, close to 15 years ago. Um, this is his first interview, believe it or not, for somebody who has taught so many tour guides and just taught so many tourists and so many people about the land of Israel. So um, I'm very honored, and he's being coerced into doing this. But uh, Huey, thank you so much for uh, being cajoled into this interview. Thank you very much, Eve. It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, sitting in a beautiful apartment overlooking the sea. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm here, okay, at your beckon to answer any questions you have, because as you said, this is my first interview. I've never been interviewed before for a podcast or any kind of uh, other type of recording. And so it's, uh, it's up to you to lead the way and, uh, and, and decide what your listeners are interested in hearing. Well, you have a lot to say, and this I know from, from years of, you're like, you know, if I have a question, it's ask Huey. There was no such thing as Huey doesn't know. When we were out on our course, I remember we'd see a bird flying way up high, and we'd say to ourselves, Huey would know not only what kind of bird it is, but if it's a male or female, if it's carrying an egg, where it came from, where it's going to, and what it just ate for breakfast. So just you should know in what kind of esteem we held you. And it was really great now, even though it's very, very hot. I look out, uh, I come down to Ashkelon, I look out on the sea, and because because tour guides have this illness, we don't just see what we're seeing. We're seeing what was here in the past. I'm imagining the ships that came in, the battles that were fought here, the refugees that struggled onto the shore here, what was being grown, what was happening. It's never just looking out on the land. Everywhere we go, every road that we traverse in our minds is who was here, what were they doing, how did it end, what's going on. It's really, it's an amazing privilege, and I really owe you a lot because you're the one who really taught me to, to think that way and just gave me that curiosity to be able to take what you taught me and move it forward. So um, as some of my listeners might have noted, you speak English very well. So maybe just give us a little bit about your background. Like, how, how did you come to be in Israel? Oh, I came to be in Israel because uh, I was uh, received a postcard when I was a little kid from my father's cousin, uh, Moshe Oman, Alman, who was, uh, worked in Misrata Chutz okay, in, in Israel for the foreign ministry. And uh, he, by the way, is the brother of the Nobel Prize laureate, okay, Robert John Alman, Yisrael Oman. And I received a postcard of a little boy watering a sunflower plant with a beautiful, uh, uh, some kind of uh, community in the background with a water tower and palm trees. And it really uh, hit my imagination and he said, why don't you, the postcard was, dear Yui, okay, why don't you come and join us here in Israel? Where were you living at the time? At the time, New York. Mm -hmm. And I became basically the black sheep of the family at that time, because from that time on, I was determined to go, to move to Israel. And of course, that was influenced later on when I uh, went and became a Chavir Tnuav B'nai Akiva. And uh, went to Moshava for many camp Moshava for many many years, and uh, became a Madrichin Bnei Akiva. 
Danae Kiva, which is also where I went and where I met my husband, is, I guess, the premier Zionist youth organization in uh, around the world. And a lot of us who end up moving to Israel were very much influenced by, by that organization and really by its its love of the land and of the the joy and the opportunity that, that has presented itself in the 20th and 21st century of really writing Jewish history in our ancient homeland. And so B'nai Akiva, of course, uh, eventually... Uh it uh, got me to actual, uh, actually come to Israel, although I completed my last half year of high school in Jerusalem, where picking up the uh, guidebook. That time it was the premier guidebook of Israel, a small little red book written by the father of Israeli tour guide, Zev Vilnai. Mm. And instead of studying in yeshiva like I should have been at that time, uh, I was uh, combing the streets of Jerusalem everywhere every back alley in the old city, places where today even the Secret Service many times they wouldn't uh, venture going into. I ended up knowing the old city like the back of my hand, memorizing that tour book. And uh, that summer, that same summer, uh, I received guests from America, neighbors of my parents, very, very good friends, and it was the first time I actually guided. Unofficially, I took them through... At that time, it was something that was relatively new because this was, we're talking about, hey, this is 1970, uh, three years after the Six-Day War, and uh, we're talking about the city of David, the Siloam uh, water channel known as Chizkiyahu's water channel. And uh, they were amazed when I took them through and all I did was I took my pants off, went in my underpants... (laughs) went in my underpants and took them through the tunnel till the other end and they were like and I was like uh, that 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 made that actually allowed me to make a decision that I wanted to be a a guide but that wasn't uh, it didn't happen hey many many years I went back to the states uh, completely completed a BA uh, in Chinese and East Asian okay, uh, culture and uh, then I made Aliyah with my wife, Tessa, who I had met through B'nai Akiva as well, and we moved to Kibbutz. And so uh, both my college education plus my uh, going wanting to be a guide didn't reach any fruition because uh, I became a, uh, a cattle or, a, you could say, a dairy farmer. Which Kibbutz was this? Kibbutz Be'erot Yitzchak. Okay, which uh, we moved there with a group of other uh, Bnei Akiva, fellow members of Bnei Akiva, couples, young couples, some had uh, young children, some didn't have children yet. And we lived on Beretzchak for four and a half years until uh, we decided that kibbutz wasn't for us. We didn't burn any bridges, very good relations with all the people of Beirut Yitzchak. And, uh, and we were looking for a similar agricultural community, but a little more uh, privacy. Mm-hmm. And we ended up moving okay, to Moshav B'nai Darom. And we've been there ever since, okay, 40-odd years, more, 42, 42-odd okay, years, 43-odd years in B'nai Darom. Now, B'nai Darom, interestingly enough, is called B'nai Darom because actually, originally, it could have been called B'nai Kfar Darom. Okay, Kfar Darom, which was settled as one of the 11... Uh, communities established on uh, the uh, outset, uh, how do you say, the Motsei 
Hey, how would you say Motze? Hey, uh, as the Yom Kippur ends in 1946, right? So 11 different spots are set up in the Negev. It's pre-state. The British are here. The Jews are doing what we can to settle the land and also at some point to get the British out so that we can finally bring the remnants of the Holocaust over. Anyway, B'nai Darom is no, no more, no less in, uh, I mean, Kfar Darom, the original Kfar Darom is in what's now Gaza. That's correct, okay? And Kfar Darom... Okay, was where they withstood the Egyptians for 222 days. The Egyptians, the Muslim Brotherhood, in hand-to-hand combat and uh, battles until eventually they were ordered by the high command in Tel Aviv to evacuate. And they evacuated uh, with the two Torah scrolls. And in the middle of the night, under the Egyptian... Guns, they were there. The Egyptians didn't see them leaving, and it took three days until the Egyptians actually realized that they were they were just firing cannon at a community that was no longer uh, okay, inhabited. And so these uh, men and women of Kfar Darom in the Gaza Strip, they uh, settled eventually on the outskirts of what would be eventually Ashdod. Ashdod was not a city yet. They came to this area, the sand dunes, in 1949, and uh, eventually, only in the ni- 1960, okay, people began to think about Ashdod, and when the city was founded, okay, actually in 1965, with the port being built mm-hmm. in Ashdod. Now it's one of our premier ports, it along is, with Haifa. It is the largest port mm-hmm. okay, in Israel, Ashdod, today, and the population of Ashdod is today uh, close on 250,000 yeah. people, almost 260,000 people, maybe. And along with Ashkelon, mm-hmm. uh, very, very fast-growing cities. And so uh, it's interesting that Kfardarom, after the Six-Day War, uh, was resettled again in the Gaza Strip. And the members of B'nai Darom, the old members of B'nai Darom, they went back to see... Okay, they went back to tour the area of where their original kibbutz was. Mm-hmm. And right adjacent to that, that's where the, the young Kfar Darom okay, was established. And uh, unfortunately, okay, in the year 2005, these were one of the uh, communities to be uprooted. And uh, the members of those communities were actually thrown out of their homes and they had to find new homes. Mm-hmm. Okay, with all the hardships, most of them being already in their middle ages okay, of their life. And it was very difficult. And uh, so today we are how many? We are now uh, 17, 17 years, 17 years since that tragedy. So we could say that Kfar Darom actually was, uh, was, con- was destroyed twice. Destroyed twice. Destroyed yeah. twice. That's yeah. correct. Once by the Egyptians and once by the Israeli government, which is, I don't know which one is more painful. I mean, I do know, but I'm, I'm not going to say. So you and Tessa, you, you go into B'nai Darom, you raise a beautiful family. We don't have to say the number, many children, many grandchildren. So when do you actually fulfill your dream and become a tour guide? Okay, well, I, for many years, uh, both when we were in Bero Itzhak and also in B'nai Darom, uh, I began uh, dealing with a lot of youth. I was the uh, madrich or the counselor of Hachshara, uh, B'nai Kiva Hachshara, and Sochnut Hachshara program in B'nai Darom. This is a year program of American youth coming for their gap, their gap year. 
and uh, and we would tour all over Israel, and I would be taking them all over the country, as well as uh, the local school, both the elementary school and the high school. Uh, they would ask me to come and guide their uh, pupils okay, for their yearly, what would call the Tiul Shnati, which was mm-hmm. the yearly excursion okay, to different places in Israel. And so that kept me okay, knowledgeable and uh, always looking for more information, but uh, dealing with youth, very, very different than guiding tourists. Right. And finally, Tessa was the one who pushed me, okay, who said, listen, now go and start making some money. <laughs> okay, so go get a license. Because I had many years before, I had wanted to do the tour guide course in Jerusalem. So it was only at the end of the 1980s that I uh, did the course in Tel Aviv. And I got my tour guide license. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was well worth it because uh, I really enjoyed it. But I was juggling between guiding and working on the Moshav. Uh, Tessa, my wife and I, we made the decision. We know that guides are usually on the road most of the time. And uh, we had a lot of children at home. And Tessa did not want to be alone raising the children. And so we said that I would not be guiding more than a third Okay, mm-hmm. of my working time. And so I constantly had to keep on working on the Moshav and juggling between guiding and working on the Moshav. So I was a farmer and a guide at the same time, holding different positions on the Moshav and different branches of the agriculture and also in different branches of uh, different administrative capacities on the Moshav itself. So maybe explain, I, I think everyone more or less knows what a kibbutz is, essentially like a socialist way of life where everybody gets an allowance and doesn't keep their own salaries and everything really belongs to the kibbutz and your, your life is very much controlled by the kibbutz, whether you travel, whether you go to school, it's decisions that were made by the kibbutz. But what is a moshav? Okay, now I'll have to correct you on that as well because the, the no, no, the, the terminology of moshav as I said, Moshav, because it's easier to call it a Moshav. That's the community where we're living, although it's not a true Moshav. Oh. While the Kibbutzim, Kibbutzim are plural for Kibbutz. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Kibbutzim, of course, these were actually communal communities mm-hmm. where the main goal, the main ideal would be uh, everyone would be more or less equal trying to create an egalitarian society, which we know is impossible. <laughs> However, uh, this was an attempt, and the basic motto was uh, from each according to their ability and to each according to their need, with little okay, private ownership. And very early in the kibbutz movement, okay, people already found the social friction on the kibbutz, the close-knit okay, social friction, to be uh, too intense for them. And many of them left. And one prime example, of course, is Dayan, Dayan family. Mm-hmm. Okay, everyone knows, is familiar with Moshe Dayan, the one-eyed Israeli general and statesman. And uh, he was born, actually, he was the first child to be born on Kibbutz Diganya, which was the first Kibbutz to be established. But his parents, they soon after that, they left Diganya, and they moved to what became the first Moshav, which was Moshav Nahalal, okay, in the Lower Galilee. And their goal was basically to form a community, again, a close-knit community of farmers, but instead of, as on kibbutz, the entire kibbutz would own all of the 
means of production together and everyone would share everything and everything would be communally based on a moshav, each family would have their own private homestead. Okay, while they would still have uh, strength through unity by owning together, they would buy together farm equipment, all the machinery, and they would share them amongst the farmers because they didn't have enough money, every farm, every small family to buy. And they would market their produce together. They would also buy things, okay, in bulk as well. And that was the strength of the community. And it would also allow for, of course, these early years of the Jewish communities and settlement in Israel, it would allow them to also defend their communities together. And so, but a moshav was basically a community that was divided into private homesteads. Well, suppose, uh, like, if you can right away drive in Israel on the roads, and where you see large expanses, large fields, and a community in the middle, that would be usually a kibbutz. Because there was no need to divide the land into small private homesteads. Because uh, everyone owned together, so you could have a large field of corn or a large field of uh, tomatoes or sunflowers, and because it was all done together, all the work, labor, and then it was all the profits were pooled together. On a moshav, you drive throughout Israel and you can see the small, the, 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 the communities where you have the small parcels of land divided up, and that right away you can become an expert. You drive through Israel and notice what's a moshav, amaze your friends, which is a moshav, which is a kibbutz. You might not know the name of the specific community, but you could basically understand the socioeconomic difference. Now, why did I say it's mistaken to call where we live in Bnei Roma Moshav? Because, and excuse my language, we are the bastardization between a kibbutz and a moshav. We are what you know as a moshav shitufi. Mm-hmm. A moshav shitufi was, uh, usually many of them were former kibbutzim. Some of them were not. But it's basically taking the whole concept of every family living on their own and controlling their own private life. Uh, There was no central dining hall, no children's homes, uh, no central laundry. Uh, Every family would run their entire family private life on their own, but all the means of production were owned by the community. In other words, you would leave that aspect of the kibbutz intact, where Kfardarum was originally a kibbutz. In 1960, it turned from a kibbutz to a moshav shitufi, because the people didn't want to be kibbutz any longer, and they said, we want more privacy in our lives. And so, however, the means of production were kept jointly owned, so everyone would work still for the community. So like when you would go out and guide... You didn't keep your own salary, it went into the community pot. Correct, correct. When I would go out and guide, and whether it was privately or through an agent, okay, the entire, all of the income would go straight to the community, mm-hmm. straight to the communal pot, and, uh, and I would get the same salary as everyone. Everyone would have the same allowance. monthly allowance. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the monthly allowance actually covered okay, all your basic living needs, we were a moshav that had a lot of foresight in terms of one of the few moshavim and kibbutzim that had foresight in that we very early opened up uh, savings accounts for every okay, moshav member, every member of our moshav, where that, uh, the moshav would put every month money in the bank for us and we would contribute the same amount of money 
from our own mm-hmm. okay, salary into that, and every Moshavnik would have a savings account on the side, which couldn't be opened for 15 years. Wow. In other words, this way we were saving up for... And then so we were very conservative financially. Very conservative financially. We also opened up pension funds for every single member very early on. And so every, to this day, every member on the Moshav is taken care of. Okay, with, you know, without any problem, the person reaches pension age mm-hmm. and they don't have to feel that they're a burden on right. the community because they worked all those years and there's a pension fund that can totally support them. Amazing. And so it's, uh, it's something that in B'nai Darom, they had enough foresight in the community we're in to, uh, to think of this. And to mm-hmm. do that where a lot of kibbutzim are struggling because they did not do this. Right. They didn't do this, and a lot of the members in many kibbutzim, on kibbutzim that fell apart, are paupers because of that. After working very hard their entire lives. Correct, correct. And so, uh, so I was lucky. Okay, on the one hand, all the money went into the moshav, but on the other hand, now that I'm of past retirement age mm-hmm. by three years, uh, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to worry about the fact that I'm still receiving the same allowance from mm-hmm. the Moshav every month. I have a roof over my head, food on the table, right. okay, money that's saved up as well. And, uh, and I don't have to feel bad right. okay, that I'm not pulling okay, my own and not working as hard as I did when I was 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's, uh, so there are advantages and disadvantages to every single type of community. You live in Israel, you have to make a choice. I always say that whether it's a kibbutz or moshav or city life or a, uh, a, co- a, a communal village or a cooperative village that you live in, such as you live in Efrat, mm-hmm. okay, it's not a question of the advantages you have from all these places. It's a question is if you can deal with the problems if you can deal with the problems, then you have no problem. You have no, you know, you can survive in any of these communities. Because on the tight-knit uh, social and economic uh, situation you have on a kibbutz is a little different than what we have. Okay? On a moshav shitufi, on a cooperative uh, or communal moshav, however you want, you want to translate that. And it's very different from in the city where people have to be on a day-to-day basis, they have to make sure that they're making a living. Mm -hmm. You don't have a safety net like you built for yourself. So it depends what problems you want to deal with in your life. That you can determine Mm -hmm. where you're going to live. But you have to make a choice, and you have to be satisfied with the choice you make. That's the way it is. So I remember when we were in the course, uh, you were working towards your master's degree at the time, and and maybe tell my listeners a little bit about the thesis that you wrote, because part of what you do is also go into the old writings of people, travelers who were here, historians who were here, and and one of the things that, of course, we all realize at some point is that history is written very differently in the ancient day than it is today. It's not necessarily footnoted. Okay, they write down not necessarily facts as we would today um, and its impressions and, and its agendas. And so in particular, what you wrote, Josephus, the very controversial historian of the time period of the end of the Second Temple period. Um, let me just tell my listeners a little bit about this really at the time radical and now very much passed on and accepted idea that you had about some of what, what he was describing that was happening during those days, during the days of the Great Revolt in particular against Rome. Well, I was always fascinated with Josephus. 
because uh, Josephus, of course, he was our real only source okay, for what was going on during his period of time, and even before that, okay, from the time of the Hasmoneans, okay, when the Romans first came into the land of Israel. And when touring around Israel, Josephus uh, is uh, like a handbook that you have for guides, because you can read through Josephus and you can actually describe what you're looking at. Uh, and most scholars will say that his physical descriptions okay, fit the bill. Okay? Everything is just like what he said. Even in Masada, when he talks about seeing Masada and the, 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 the marble of Herod's palaces, okay, people have questions. What marble? At the time of Herod, there, were no, there was no marble. However, you visit Masada and you see that the walls of the palaces, the frescoes, were, were painted in a marble design. So it's possible that Josephus never really saw it himself, but he was told okay, there was marble, it was marble and, uh, on, on there. So, so the physical descriptions are usually very, very accurate okay, when it comes to how he describes Jerusalem, how he describes all the different places that he encountered okay, in his very interesting and complex life, Josephus. Uh, however... Uh, one of the places where I frequented with tourists was the city of Gamla in the Golan Heights. And uh, Gamla, which is situ- situated in the central Golan Heights, is, uh, t- gets its name from the fact that it is uh, shaped, and this Josephus mentions it as well. Okay? It's like the hump of a camel. Okay? A ridge that is like the hump of a camel. And the houses of Gamla that have been excavated by Shmaryau Gutman, a very well-known archaeologist who gained his fame from Gamla but was cheated by Yigal Yadin of actually his fame from Masada. Because it was Shmaryau Gutman who was the one who had convinced and actually pushed Yadin to excavate Masada. Shmaryau Gutman, who uh, in Palmach days, and this you can actually uh, identify with, he was actually uh, in charge, and he founded the Mistaravim, okay, in the Palmach, okay, those young men and women who would dress up as Arabs and infiltrate in order to get information, gain okay, intelligence. We're talking about the pre-state days before we've got an IDF. That's correct, and he was the first one to scale Masada. Before it was a site to be visited, he scaled Masada on the northern side, the northern palaces. Okay, because at that time you'd go up usually the, the snake path or the ramp and it became a famous place okay, to visit. He was the one who pushed okay, all the youth movements at that time in the early state days okay, to uh, include it in, uh, hmm. in the curriculum, visiting Masada and climbing up, climbing up Masada. And uh, however, uh, although he partially participated in the Yadin excavations of Masada, he was pushed to the side, and only eventually when uh, it was pointed out to him by uh, uh, Yitzhak Gal. Yitzhak Gal was an archaeologist who did archaeological surveys in the Golan Heights. And in 1967, when Yitzhak Gal all of a sudden was standing over uh, an overlook, overlooking this ridge that had a very unique hump, Looking towards, you could see the Sea of Galilee in the distance. 
Did Yitzchak Yigal say, hey, one moment, hold on. This is Gamla. This is exactly how Jerusalem... Gamal means camel, by the way, in Hebrew. That's hence the name. So Yitzchak Yigal said, this is Gamla. This is exactly how Josephus describes it. And he brought Shmariah Gutman there, and Shmariah Gutman concurred. This must be it. And they decided, Shmariah Gutman decided to excavate. And he excavated Gamla, and the whole northern slope was found to be an inhabited area from uh, the time of the, uh, the uh, first century BCE, okay, dating all the way until the destruction of Gamla by the Romans. And that was in the first century CE. And that was previous, right prior, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, however, what's interesting even more is the uh, area below that uh, first century BCE level okay, was excavated as well. And they found remnants only of Bronze Age. Hmm. Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, Gamla, that uh, fits in well with what the Talmud says. When it says, talks about the walled cities at the time of Joshua bin Nun, one of the walled cities that's mentioned is Gamla. But then Gamla disappears from the face of the earth until the Second Temple period time. Hmm. And so it's interesting that he found, Shmuel Kutman found the remnants from that early time, that early, very, very early time, underneath the Roman occupation level. And, uh, and it shows that the, the city was built on a very steep slope where the homes were built in a terrace-like fashion. Okay? One home being built not directly on top of the other, okay? however, in a terrace-like fashion, up the hill, where it's possible that the roof of one home was the balcony of the home above it. Maybe so, maybe yes, maybe no. But that's how it was built. And in one of the stories that Josephus writes about in the Battle of Gamla, when the Romans surrounded and besieged Gamla, it talks about how the Romans were able to breach the city walls, which were built by Josephus. I wouldn't even say that there was a proper city wall, because actually what they did is Gamla uh, was a city that was open, without a wall, and when Josephus came, he fortified it. He filled in the alleyways between the homes, and he created a solid wall going down from the top of the slope all the way going down, filling in the alleyways. And uh, you can't sh- show this because I'm talking with my hands at the moment, <laughs> Eve. And, uh, and however, however, when the Romans managed to breach those walls, those alleyways, and get in, they flooded the city with Roman soldiers and began going into the alleys, going uphill, pushing the defenders of Gamla up the hill. And, uh, and eventually they ended up going into the homes as well. However, right away... Hey, after the Romans had managed to climb up the hill with the defenders okay, running away, the defenders then turned their backs. Okay, they turned around, excuse mm-hmm. me, didn't about face, and began to attack the Romans. And the defenders had the advantage because they were on their upper side. In other words, they, were, they held the high ground. Right. And they were attacking the Romans 
And the Romans kept on pouring in because the Romans didn't know you didn't have a cell phone at that time. And the Roman soldiers, they saw their, their, their comrades going up the hill and the Romans kept on pouring into the city and pouring into the city, going uphill in the alleyways. And those that were uh, right opposite the defenders of Gamla, they were being pressed from the back by their fellow soldiers and they were fighting in the front. Okay, In the front, the defenders of Gamla were pushing them and fighting with them. Many Roman soldiers then had nowhere they would, could be crushed by their own uh, comrades who were coming up from the rear. So many of them escaped into the houses of Gamla. And the houses of Gamla, some of them, of course, they exited onto a balcony or a roof of the dwelling below. And all of a sudden, Josephus tells us that the roofs could not hold the Roman soldiers and the Roman the houses began to collapse. And they collapsed and all the rubble killed many dozens of Roman soldiers. And of course, this allowed the defenders of Gamla to take the weapons from the Roman soldiers and to continue pressing forwards and downhill and the Roman soldiers and, and the rubble of the homes would fall on the Roman soldiers downhill. They kept on falling until it was a great tragedy among the Roman soldiers and they had to retreat. And they retreated, and it says at that time that Titus, who was their commander at the time, he had to give a pep talk, a tremendous pep talk to them, because they they didn't want to go back and fight in the city. But the question that I ask after studying, okay, from Ehud Netzer, Ehud Netzer, who was the the archaeologist of the Herodian, the archaeologist of Masada, the archaeologist of Jericho, the archaeologist of uh, certain portions of the banyas. Okay, he did a lot of uh, research on the traditional building methods because he originally, Ehud Netzer, he started out, he was an architect. And uh, he did a lot of research on the different building methods and ancient building methods. He compared the building methods that in ancient times, time of the Second Temple period, and then afterwards during the time of the uh, Mishnah and the Talmud, Okay, to very, very similar to the traditional homes that were built in Israel by the peasants living in Israel for many, many centuries to come. And, uh, and I took the knowledge that he had printed up in uh, he and Roni Reich, they did the original uh, research on this, and it struck a bell because I, I, I said it's impossible. The calculations that they made with the amount of weight that could be supported by a roof of those agricultural dwellings, because Gambla was an agricultural town. The amount of olive presses that were found in Gambla, and they only found a few, but they were only 3% of the city was excavated. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so... And so the, the main production in Gamla was, uh, were olives. And so the, the agricultural community used to use the rooftops for storage for agricultural produce and for the stone. You know, every year they would re, redo the, the roofs in order to make sure they were sealed properly for the winter rains. So the guys used to have these heavy rolling stones on the roofs. And it's impossible that uh, considering you do the calculation of how much a Roman soldier weighed, even with all his armor and his weapons, 
And uh, if the Roman soldiers would congregate on the roof of one of those buildings, impossible that the roofs would collapse just under the weight of the Roman soldiers. And so uh, my theory was, and this is something that Josephus very cleverly hides okay, in his story, is the fact that the Battle of Gamla happened during the high holiday season. He writes the dates actually of Sukkot, right? Of in no, but he, but he writes the dates he of Tishrei. That's a, correct. Okay, he writes it's like what? a code to the Jews. Exactly, exactly. Because Josephus, he was actually trying to tell us something without letting the Romans know. And if Josephus had already been captured by the Romans and he was a, became a Roman camp follower at that time, if he was a witness, and this I had written very a lot with Steve Mason, who was a, one of the prime scholars okay, on Josephus at the time, and uh, we would discuss if Josephus could have been a Gamla or not. And it's very, very possible he was there. But if he was there, he would have been relied on by the Romans for intelligence, Mm-hmm. Okay, of what was what was happening because he had fortified the city himself. So what what what's going to happen is that the Romans what they'll blame Josephus. Okay, if the Romans collapse on the roofs. Okay, what 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 happened here? So so Josephus very very cleverly hides that the time per, per period of time that the Romans were besieging Gamla. The uh, this was the time of the high holidays, with uh, the Romans actually entering the town and going onto the rooftops. This okay fits in perfectly with the days of tabernacles, the days of the holidays of Sukkot, and we know that the citizens of Gamla they would have definitely kept the laws, the rules, and regulations of Sukkot, and we know that many many times when uh, they couldn't, you couldn't go out and find the proper amount of uh, uh, greenery that would be called, that's called schach, okay, cut green branches or, uh, or large... Uh, fronds. Uh, fronds or, or, or cane, okay, cane plants... Uh, in order to cover over these small booths that would be commanded, we were commanded for seven days to dwell in the booths, that uh, what they would do, and this is known of, uh, in, in the Talmud, that uh, even, even Shammai, and we know of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, was Av Beidin when Hillel was the Nasi, mm-hmm. okay, of what then the Sanhedrin, or the High Jewish Court, that Shammai... Uh, ordered that the ma'azeva, the ma'azeva, which was the way the roofs were constructed at that time, were of uh, boughs or beams that spanned from one wall to the next. And then this was in a weave pattern. You'd had then after that uh, uh, thinner branches on top of that, and on top of that you would put straw, and on top of that you'd pack it with mud. And so in order to create turn a room into a sukkah, all you had to do is break through. You didn't have to break through the beams themselves, but the thin branches that were on top, mm-hmm. you break through, and then you see the open sky, and then you can cover that with the schach that you have, which is the cut okay, greenery 
that would cover it over, just like if you go into a modern-day booth during the time of Sukkot, and you could see that it's covered with either palm fronds or olive branches or bamboo or slats or uh, whatever. So essentially they turned their homes into a sukkah by thinning out their roofs, and it makes sense time-wise because sukkot is we pray for rain, it's the end of the dry season, and then you're going to rebuild your roof after sukkot, as you said, getting it ready for winter, sealing it, etc. But the Romans didn't know this, and they fall through the the weakened roofs. Somehow did not tell them. Somehow. Somehow did not tell them. And it says, of course, when they were standing from afar, it says in Josephus that when the Romans began to fall through the roofs, there was such amount of dust, it says, that they couldn't see anything. And imagine the Roman outlooks, the Roman camps on all sides surrounding Gamla. Okay, all of a sudden you see all this dust. You couldn't see what was happening. Hmm. Couldn't see anything. Because all the buildings, the Romans fell through the, the, these roofs and, and the houses began to collapse. Because don't forget this, again, Ehud Netzer and Ronnie Reich, uh, you know, they, they show that the beams of the roofs would actually be part of the support of the buildings themselves. Mm-hmm. And the second you thinned out the beams by creating these booths, creating a room, making the room into a into a sukkah itself, into a booth, and the Romans would be falling through, and by that nature that would happen, they would be breaking through. Some of the beams would be also, okay, would, would break, and then the walls would not be supported properly also, and they would collapse on themselves. Now, why would the Romans go out on these roofs? Okay, wouldn't they see a hole or whatever? Or that mm-hmm. they, no, the Romans thought, and it was seen from afar, that there was agricultural produce on the roofs. Yeah. And so the schach, all this greenery, was thought to be possibly agricultural pro- produce right. on the roofs. And when the Romans entered onto these roofs, they thought, oh, it's a solid roof, but it's supporting agricultural produce. And then they went, and all of a sudden they fell through. They fell through. So I believe that Josephus hid this. Okay, he didn't mention it, but he knew what was going on. But he didn't want to be accused later on. Don't forget, his main benefactors okay, were, were Vespasian and Titus. Okay, he became part of that, the Flavian house. He even chose the name. Okay, also his, although his name was Yossi Hakoin, okay, <laughs> Joseph, the son of Matithius, okay, Matityahu, okay, he became known as Josephus Flavius. And he knew who his benefactors were, and he could not be seen to not have given them the proper information. Mm. But he hid it from us because he really mentioned the, the dates when this was right. occurring. And, and uh, he, knew, he knew what was going on. So do you have any other theories? I mean, now part of what you're doing, what others have done, is now to look through Josephus again and see maybe he left some other clues. Because for a long time, the Jews at least didn't study Josephus, feeling that he was a traitor uh, to us, the commander of the Galilean forces, and turns over into the Romans. But as you said, he wrote a lot of important history, also about things that happened before his lifetime, like on the Hasmoneans, based on texts that we no longer have. So he's the only source. So are you? is there anything else that you're curious about that you have found in his writings that maybe will change or tweak a little bit some of what we know now in, in the archaeological digs? Yeah, well, there's one thing that I can't take complete credit for. 
because uh, for many, many years I guided in Masada. And Masada, of course, uh, interestingly enough, okay, everyone knows the story of Masada. Mm. That Masada, okay, was besieged by the Romans. Uh, you had approximately uh, 1,000, I will say, I'll round out the figure, okay, 960, mm. uh, right. whatever that Josephus says, uh, defenders of Masada, which included men, women, children, uh, old men and women as well, infants. And they were actually besieged by the Romans. The question is always asked is what time of year was it? And, uh, and how long was the siege? And, and so on and so forth. The Romans were very, very cunning. And uh, if they would have gone down to the Judean wilderness, the Judean desert by the Dead Sea, to uh, besiege Masada, of course, it would have been in the beginning of the winter, the winter months yeah. when it wouldn't be so hot and they would be there during the winter because they would have had to uh, uh, provide water Mm-hmm. for themselves and all the camp followers, the slave traders, the merchants, uh, everyone that was there, the, 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 uh, the prostitutes that serviced the, the Roman soldiers, and everyone had to have water. And the nearest water okay, were springs in the Tzaylim uh, ravine, and, and they weren't sufficient enough, so you'd have to bring water from Ein Gedi. Because although you can look at the Dead Sea, okay, water, water everywhere, but not yeah. a drop to drink. Right. And, uh, and so the Romans would have been smart about that, and they would have uh, come down in the winter, and they would, they would have known that they had to end this siege before the hot summer months. And so according to Josephus, of course, he doesn't really give any dates except for the fall of Masada. Okay, When that last fateful night was in Masada, when after the Romans breached the wall, and when, uh, and of course the the fire began to burn uh, and burn the wall that the zealots had fortified with wooden beams from the palace. It doesn't Josephus doesn't say from the palace. He says from the buildings. Mm-hmm. He, they fortified it, and uh, and uh, the Romans and that fire just turned back onto the Romans themselves. And then the fire turned back on the zealots and burned through. And very interesting, the Romans, Josephus tells how the Romans just went back to their camp that night for the returning day, which seems kind of weird, because after having their adrenaline built up so much that they shouldn't just wait there and wait and wait until just burst through right away. And so they waited, and that gave a sufficient amount of time within Josephus' novel for him to add to the suspense by uh, saying how Elazar ben Yair uh, gathered... The leader of the Jews that were up there. Correct. Gathered all of the, I would say, the... The heads of the households, essentially. Heads of the households, essentially, in Masada. Okay, gathered them together and gave his famous speeches in telling them how they were the first to rebel against the Romans. These were the zealots, and they were the first to rebel against the Romans, and now they are the last... Okay, to remain after everyone else was taken under Roman rule. And of course, according to the zealots, uh, being under Roman rule was tantamount to idol worship. Because the second you became uh, a slave under the Roman ho- in a Roman household, okay, you were in the household of pagans, and this would be like uh, being under idol worship. And uh, this was one of the commandments that uh, in Hebrew it's called mitzvot. Uh, 
Okay, it's I, better to die than go in that direction because you lose your basic humanity. You lose who you are. There's major sins that you're not supposed to do, and idol worship is one of them. It is one of them, exactly. And so rather than be under the Roman rule and being subjected to this idol worship, uh, they would rather take their lives. And so we have other indications in, you know, that uh, in Judaism this was such, the famous story of Hannah and her seven sons, right. A uh, story that you have that is mentioned by Josephus when the zealots were fighting against Herod in the Galilee in the Arbel Fortress as well. How uh, a father who was would be throwing his his young young children or children off the cliffs. Mm-hmm. They should not uh, should not be under under pagan rule. And uh, of course, we have the biblical stories of of uh, Samson. And uh, if you talk about suicide, taking your own life, Samson, and of course you have uh, the famous one of King Saul mm-hmm. on the Gilboa. So when we think about suicide being repulsive, as it is in modern-day Judaism, and Judaism is well repulsive, we even have cases of in the Middle Ages, in the medieval period, in the Crusader period, where you had, we have known written cases of, uh, of rabbis and people who would slaughter their own families rather than being taken by the Crusaders. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we're talking about in the Rhineland, when right. the Crusaders came through the Rhineland. However, in Masada, Elizabeth ben Yair gives his speech, and Josephus, of course, he wants them all to commit suicide, because he wants the zealots to... Uh, he was not a friend of the zealots, even though he admired them tremendously, as you can see from the way he writes about them as being heroes and being very brave and very, very steadfast in their beliefs, and uh, willing to fight to the death, basically, but not willing to be under uh, Roman rule and committing the tragedy, because actually they didn't really commit suicide. Here you Mm -hmm. had every single household head. uh, He would commit murder by murdering his children and his wife, and then then you would choose ten, and those ten, out of those ten, those ten would then... They would murder the others, okay, the household heads. And Josephus even, he, he's very, very graphic. He talks about this, how the, the, the fathers would be hugging their wives and children with one hand, and with their other hand, they would be holding their sword, okay, ready to, to slay them. But of course, Josephus wasn't there. He hears this from exactly. people who were there, or we don't know. I mean, okay, there's a lot of I questions. Wanna, I want to yeah. suggest, though, an excellent take on Josephus, the best, best take that I heard, and uh, this I can recommend it because we really don't know, and this take is also we don't know, mm-hmm. but it's the, uh, the, uh, well, what, the name of the book was The Dove... Oh, the, the Dove Keepers. Dove Keepers, right. right. Okay, excellent. I think that th- I, I see that, and I see that as the best so far take on how Josephus developed his, his ideas. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of Masada, when you only have, okay, everyone kills everyone else, and right. all you have is the last person, they drew lots, as Josephus says. Ten men drew lots, and one came out. Right. Okay, as the one who had to kill all the others, and only the last one, he would actually be the one to commit Mm-hmm. Suicide. Otherwise, it was murder. Right. And so Josephus uh, says that in the end, there were when the Romans conquered Masada, they came up onto Masada, and everything was silent. Right. Eh, silent, nothing. And all they saw were all these dead bodies. And all of a sudden, you have two women and five children coming out of 
the water cisterns. In other words, they were hiding. And he describes and he says, one was an old woman, and another woman was of a kin of Elazar ben Yair, and she was above the average intelligence of, <laughs> of, of women. Now, what does that mean? Of course, there was no political correctness uh, yeah. at that time, especially of Josephus. And, uh, but she was able to quote okay, the entire speech of Elizabeth and Europe, which in any book that you read of Josephus is at least five pages long. Right. And she was able to quote everything. And so Josephus, although uh, it's very doubtful that she might have gotten the gist of it, and who knows if she was even there, even though she might have been listening on the side, or Elazar ben Yair, who knows how she was related to him. So while Josephus, the way he treated Elazar ben Yair, he didn't think very much of him, and he wanted to show everyone what he thought of him by saying, look, he convinced everyone else to kill themselves, but he secreted away his wife mm-hmm. or his mistress, mistress to the side with his children. In other words, I will, everyone else will kill themselves, but my seed will live on. And that's basically what Josephus, a message in the, in the subtext right. that Josephus was, was giving. And so uh, Josephus treats the zealots very, very harshly and with his whole suicide dilemma and then the suicide actually being performed. And then, of course, uh, Yigal Yadin, who excavated the Masada, he actually says Josephus... Uh, describe things exactly the way they happened. Of course, I mentioned that Josephus in his physical description of Masada was perfect. Mm. Beautiful. Okay, so the question is now with the plot. Physical. The why. The what? The why. Exactly. The why. And, and as speaking as, obviously, a much less experienced tour guide as you, a lot of us have trouble with guiding Masada and with that particular story. A, because we're dragging people out to the end of the world and turning right, and then telling them a story about a mass suicide. And also because the route, there's no sources in the rabbinic literature about what happened or in the Roman literature what happened. And so it's a difficult story to tell. And many of us over the last few years have tried to unpack it in different ways. And that, could it have happened? Now, there are guides who flat out, I know that I've heard them say, it didn't happen. This way Josephus made the whole thing up. Um, I'm not there yet because he still is a valid source. But you were telling me earlier today that you have another idea maybe on what happened there, something that hasn't been published yet, something when you get a few minutes spare time you want to write an article about. So maybe since this is anyway an exclusive interview with Huey Yaman, maybe we can be the first to hear what is this idea of yours? Okay, first of all, let me just say how I usually, how I used to guide Masada in terms of your dilemmas as well. And uh, I would take people to the synagogue, okay? which was actually probably was a synagogue, mm-hmm. okay? a house of gathering. You could see by the seats okay, that uh, surround the room that people would sit there. And, uh, and it was. And not only that, but the, the, the back room uh, was found to contain the fragments of many, many scrolls. Right. And one of the scrolls that was found in that back room, very interestingly, was, uh, it was taken pulled out of the ground was chapter 37 of Ezekiel. That chapter 37, which everyone knows, yeah. is not as the comic strip, but as the, okay, the famous uh, uh, vision that the prophet Ezekiel had of the valley filled with dry bones, okay, the vision of the dry bones. And it talks about how the dry bones all, okay, the, the Spirit of God, okay, 
uh, actually blew over them, and then they all gathered together with sinews and ligaments, and then muscles and flesh, and then he breathed life. Breathed life. God breathed life into these dry bones, and then they all got up, and they marched, and they returned to their land, the land mm-hmm. of Israel. This was talking about the resurrection of the dead, and the ingathering of the exiles coming back to the land of Israel. And why do I usually bring this up sitting in the synagogue? And it was actually found there in the synagogue uh, because I say to people that just imagine the archaeologists in Masada who are excavating here. Some of them, you talk about the 1960s. Okay, This is less than 20 years after the tragedy of the Holocaust. After, we're, we're just still discovering, as Eve has mentioned many times in her podcasts, okay, about the, 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 the Eichmann trial, right. okay, in the 1960s, and people are really just beginning to really learn of the great, great tragedy of the Holocaust, and actually the dry bones, those were the yeah. dry bones. And you it looks like that vision was written for that time, the Valley of the Dry Bones, meaning essentially Europe and the camps in Europe, and then the resurrection of the Jewish people on their land, the birth of the state of Israel. Just imagine these archaeologists, who some of them, possibly the volunteers coming, and European, I remember seeing pictures of the European volunteers, all these Scandinavian girls who were half-naked excavating in the hot sun, and they were also, you know, they were trying to redeem themselves in a way. A lot of these German girls came to Israel in order to redeem themselves for the sins of their, their, their fathers and grandfathers. And they, and they came and all of a sudden, pulling out of the ground. Yeah. In this, you pull out this chapter of Ezekiel, the chapter of the dry bones. Talk about a prophecy coming true exactly. before your eyes. And, say, and, it's, and you know, it wasn't seated. In other words, it came true. It's as if the people of Masada at that time had planted it there. Talking about from 2,000 years, they had planted it in there to be found by the excavators who were from all different places, the Jews coming back and gathering exiles to find okay, these words, telling them something, that they came back here and they're now in the land of Israel. They're seeing the miracle happen before their eyes. And so that was usually my take um, of the message that I wanted people mm-hmm. to come away with, not the message that it might be in the same place that Eliezer Ben Yair talked to people about what was he, what, what, what his vision that you know mm-hmm. he thought that was the end, that they didn't realize that it wasn't the end, right. that there was a continuation that would only really be after two thousand years of exile, okay, and they came back. However, okay, I came upon an article. Hey, this was many years ago, that was written by a well-known archaeologist. Today he's the, uh, I believe, the head of the Israel Exploration Society. His name is Hillel Geva. And, uh, and he wrote an article about something that Yigal Yadin very conveniently leaves out of his narrative of Masada. It is mentioned, if you look in Yadin's Masada report that eventually he didn't publish, but eventually was published. Okay, and the, it, it is mentioned. Okay, however, it's just like again, it's just as a uh, as a you know, it's mentioned because they found it, but nothing. No, nobody elaborated on it. Significant. 
And what it is, it is a siege ramp. We all know about the famous siege ramp and how the Romans conquered Masada. However, according to Josephus, they came onto Masada after conquering the mountain with their siege ramp and were met with everyone being dead. Right. Somewhat of a Pyrrhic victory, if you will. Exactly. And so, however, okay, could this really have happened when you think about it? What they found, Hila Geva says, that the excavators of Masada found another siege ramp, but not a siege ramp okay, from the base of the cliff of Masada going to the top, but a siege ramp that signifies an internal battle in Masada. In other words, the defenders of Masada, okay, they all... How many of them? Mm-hmm. Okay, they all retreated to the castle keep. Herod's northern palace okay, was the highest point of the mountain. It was the easiest point to defend. And so within the palace area, the palace complex, the private living quarters of the palace, the top tier of the three terraced palace, Okay, was the northernmost point and the highest point of the mountain itself. And that was separated from the rest of the palace area by a very, very large wall. Okay, a large wall which reached at least five meters to seven meters in height. Against this wall was piled, and this is something that the excavators found the Yadin excavators, they found a ramp. In other words, a built earthen ramp okay, that was piled up against the palace wall, signifying, signifying that the Romans could not just climb up the, the palace wall. They had no way of getting to that area. There was only one small entrance to the palace area in the north. And so in order to conquer the area they had to build an internal ramp. They had to build a ramp within the palace area in order to overcome that very tall wall to conquer the northern palace, the living quarters themselves. If so, that would mean that there was a battle going on in Masada. Which means that not everybody's dead when the Romans come up there. Exactly, which means that not everyone, first of all, we haven't found any bones in all the places you know that, uh, and that's very easily answered. When people yeah, ask, it's two thousand years, the bones could no, disappear. They, not only no, they didn't just disappear. Okay, it would have been very, very logical for the Romans to any dead bodies just throw over the sides, mm-hmm. and, and you throw them over the sides, and I go whatever, or just for hygienic purposes. If you wanted to station a garrison on top of Masada, which we know there was a garrison afterwards on top of Masada, and we see that from the fact that you see that. The, uh, the bathhouse floors were dismantled and the, mm-hmm. the very, very beautiful tiles that were there were dismantled, probably sold, because okay? the Roman soldiers, they wanted to supplement their salary, okay? With, uh, which was given to them, of course, salary comes from salarium, which was the salt okay? that was given to them as their salary. And by the Dead Sea, salt is worthless. Okay? <laughs> so they had to supplement their salary Okay, with, uh, with something. So they probably began to sell off okay, part of the, uh, the rich uh, architectural elements on Masada. 
And but to live in conditions like that, they'd have to clear it of all any dead bodies, carcasses, mm-hmm. anything that you had. And so they probably would have thrown everything over the side. And the second thing they're thrown over the side, nature will run its course with all the flash floods in Masada surrounding the mountain and all the different beasts of prey, whether the hyenas or the leopards or the jackals, they would have, the, bo- the bodies would not, wouldn't exist any, any, they would very, very quickly have decomposed, deteriorated, and, and been spread around and you wouldn't find any remnant of them. However, however, uh, what happens is, is you have a defensive ramp. And I asked Hillel Geva okay, afterwards. I personally asked him about this ramp. And he says he still stands firmly on the fact that this was a defensive ramp. And there must have been some kind of inter- a, uh, a battle fort on top of Masada, which we find no trace except for, okay, Adin did find in the lower tier of the northern palace, he found the skeleton remains of a man, a woman, and a young girl, which we know about the sandal that was found and the braided hair and the remnants of scaled armor okay, that they found. And for many years, this was thought to be of a zealot family. And now, of course, I'm going to say, no, it's from a Roman, Roman soldier or whatever, mm-hmm. but that doesn't really doesn't matter. Okay? The fact is that there were no bones and no, nothing found okay, over there on the top of the mountain itself. Uh, there were mm-hmm. eight skeletons found in a cave on the mountain, and Rav Goren, Sarah and Rav Goren, who was at that time the chief rabbi of the IDF, very ceremoniously had them buried at the foot of Masada on the western side, because they were considered as martyrs, Jewish martyrs. However, today there's a debate whether they were actually Jewish bones or not. So we won't get into that. However, when you look at Josephus, and you say Josephus definitely had a, a goal of belittling the zealots and, 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 and showing how they, uh, they, they were... They acted in, in what his Roman way would have been an inhuman way of, uh, of suicide. Uh, he, he didn't mention anything about this internal battle. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the book, which is called Yosifun, and Yosifun, which most scholars believe it to be a rewriting of portions of Josephus by, by someone medieval, else. medieval Jewish scholars mm-hmm. who rewrite Josephus, adding to it all kinds of different medrashim and agadot, Jewish tales okay, of the rabbis, early tales of the rabbis, and adding to it these tales. And uh, in Yosifun, which the earliest copies of Yosifun, the research shows to be what is known, and this might sound very interesting to some people, Yosifun to be the Arabic Yosifun. Okay? The, the Arabic Yosifun, which uh, dates from the early Middle Ages. And in this, part, the part of the Arabic Yosifun, which is eventually translated into Hebrew, it tells about the... Uh, the fall of Masada, and how these zealots actually did not commit suicide. They actually fought against the Romans. Mm. And so we ask ourselves, was there an oral tradition 
amongst the Jews, and we handed down many oral traditions. Okay, was there an oral tradition that found its way into Yosifun? Most scholars would just dismiss this and say, no, Yosifun is a fabrication. Josephus was taken and rewritten by Jewish scholars because when you know, we talk about Rashi, okay, the great uh, medieval Jewish scholar Rashi who commentated on the Torah and every child in Judaism who studies the five books of Moses and studies the weekly portion, studies it, of course, with Rashi, Okay, and Rashi mentions Yosifun. He did not read Josephus, Rashi. Rashi didn't read Greek. Okay? And when he mentions, he mentions Yosifun. And when Rashi read Yosifun, okay, did he take Yosifun to be true or not true? Or was he just reading a redone Josephus with, uh, with all kind of medrashim added to it? Another question that could be asked, or you can try to, and I'm still all these things, that's why I haven't written an article about it, because it's still not very clear in my mind, mm-hmm. okay, as to how this all fits in. However, we know that, uh, that the Arabic, Josephun, uh, when it's translated, is very, very possible that, uh, that many of the stories... Uh, came from the original Josephus. And the original Josephus was, you had a Jewish copy, and you had a copy for, also for the uh, Roman pagan audience. And it's possible that the Jewish copy is the one that eventually uh, evolved into Yosifun. And what the Christian church preserved as the Josephus that we have to this day, which we know was edited by the church in different places, including the places where it has reference to Jesus uh, of Nazareth, uh, we know that, uh, that there probably was a Jewish Josephus. Uh, because Josephus was at odds. Because, so he shouldn't be viewed as a traitor to the Jewish people, he had to actually write something that would show how he was loyal to the Jewish people. Yeah. And it's very possible that Jewish Josephus, which was lost, because just like the Greek Josephus was lost until the church, okay, they actually found it and, and preserved it, uh, the Jewish Josephus was was lost as well, was lost. And maybe that was what was, what you know, the versions that we have in Yosifun, the stories that we have, maybe they represent exactly what was written in the Jewish Josephus. And we're not really sure. Still a lot of research has to be done, but if it's true, then the siege ramp of the northern palace in Misada points to the fact that the zealots did not commit suicide and murder each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, we don't know how many people were really up there. We have no idea. And all of them could have retreated to the Northern Palace okay, and attempted to find a way from the Northern Palace okay, through the, again, find their way down the cliffs, just like Shmariao Gutman managed to climb up the cliffs of the Northern Palace and was the first one to do that. There might have been some kind of a path of a way to get down and they could have lowered down and escaped into the desert. Amazing. Okay, they could have gotten there. But there was fighting going on at the Northern Palace at that time in order to keep the Romans at bay, possibly until all the 
-hmm. Women and children could make an escape and get out from some way, through the water systems or water canals or, or, or whatever. Because don't forget something else is the Watergate. And I'm not talking about Washington, D.C., <laughs> Nixon's Watergate. Herod had his Watergate as well. Right. Okay? And the Watergate... And the path going down to the water cisterns is right adjacent to the palace. It's right. in the palace area. Right. Okay, and it's very, very possible that there was a way that the zealots found to get to that pathway going down and get out. We don't know. A lot unanswered. Know. However, it leaves us a, a, our imagination and as guides. This I must say. Okay, it guides, guides, and this I found throughout my guiding experience, is that guides have a lot of leeway. Okay? We learn from the scholars who do all the research, the historians, the archaeologists, the geologists, the botanists, okay? the theologians. Okay? We learn from all of them. But we have a lot of, a lot of leeway. And, uh, and what we tell our tourists is to keep them interested, interested in the story. It, uh, we try to, and some guides, at least like myself, we try to pose them with a lot of dilemmas a lot of questions so that they, they have to really think. They have to think what was really going on because many times we don't know. However, many times we can't let the facts get in the way of a good story, mm-hmm. okay? which is very, very true. In order to keep people involved and, 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 you know, and wanting to hear more, a lot of times the facts sometimes have to be stretched a little and you have to use imagination. And I'll say that a historian like of jo- Josephus probably used his imagination as well. And so what we have today as being fact, Josephus, okay, Josephus, he actually probably stretched it a little. And he was telling a good story because that was his goal, to sell. He wanted to sell, a be- he wanted to create a bestseller that would be on the market and people would read and pass on. And uh, who knows if what he told us is true or not true. Okay, he was actually, he didn't let the facts get in the way of him telling a good story mm-hmm. with action, with suspense, with intrigue, with, with sex, with suicide, with murder, okay? a, a novel that people would want to pick up and read and interspersing the history within all of that and history that he himself learned from other historians who are actually court historians. They were writing, okay, in order to present their with their own with their own agenda, not necessarily as it happens. History is, as Eve has probably said, his story. Okay, he was telling history is actually so we really don't know what the facts are, and that's what archaeology is about because we use archaeology in order to try to help us. And so when we see another ramp in Masada, that was like totally ignored. I mean, he was there, and it's in his excavation report, by Yigal Yadin, but it was totally ignored in his whole narrative of Masada. And if you look at the National Parks brochure, nothing is mentioned of it. People go there, and they go to the bathhouse, and they go to the, to, to the palace. And in that whole empty area right there where you have some of the steps still preserved there, nothing is mentioned. That whole empty area, there was a ramp, a siege ramp. And that is... T- continue the narrative that Yadin coined as the Josephus narrative as what happened in Masada. But I believe that we have it as our goal to ask the questions Mm -hmm. and to say that the zealots, 
just like in Jerusalem, they fought bravely. Just like in Gamla, they fought bravely. In Masada, they didn't just have a siege where they didn't fight the Romans, really. Here, they fought bravely until the end. Mm-hmm. Until the end. And possibly to the benefit, of maybe, of their families who were able to escape. Yeah. And we don't know that. We don't know, but we have to leave it and say, right. okay, it's very, very possible that that's what happened. And one of the things I know that I, that I do as a guide, and with that I'll, I'll let you go, is have no problem saying we don't know. This is the information. This is what we have from different sources. This is the archaeologists have come up with until today, and who knows what they'll come up with tomorrow. But it's okay to not know. But it's, a, but it's really important to ask the questions and really to try and get into the motives of the people who were acting at the time. Because my membrane for the past, the, the present, and the future is almost non-existent. And the question is for me, what we can learn from these people, um, both as a Jew, both as you know, somebody who's come back to the land, um, and to try and not judge them as so harshly. That's something I've also tried to do. I wasn't walking a mile in their moccasins, as the Indians will, in America will say, um, and just trying you know, imagine what we would have done or could have done in, in their situation and what we will do in the situations that will arise in our lifetimes that aren't so simple and what people will say about us. So Huey Alman, I want to thank you so much. I think my listeners now get an idea of, uh, first of all, of the joy and excitement that I have of being a tour guide very much the privilege of, of learning so much from you and to continue to learning from you. And I hope to be continuing to learn from you for many, many, many years to come. So I wish you long life and health. And thank you for, for really helping me out today as well. Well, thank you, Eve, for having me again. As I, I'll say again, this is my first interview. So I'm very, very, I was very nervous and I didn't know what to talk about, as you know. But uh, you can wish me luck. Maybe my next day, stage in life will be as a snake catcher. Okay, yeah, that's a whole other story. And he's also, he's not kidding. (laughs) So Huey Alman, thank you so much for joining me today. Everyone, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. And uh, I hope you're all having a great summer. I'm heading to the States at the end of this week to do some speaking. You can always be in touch with me, Eve at thelandofisrael.org. And uh, hope wherever you are, you are well. Take care, everybody. Thanks to Tabitha and to Ben for putting this show out every week. Goodbye for now. Every Sunday, join the Land of Israel Fellowship. This live interactive Zoom experience is hosted by Jeremy Gimpel and Ari Abramowitz with participants from around the world. To join, visit thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship.